Chris, and welcome to Concord Matters. We have a simple goal here in Concord Matters, to seek unity in our confession of the Christian faith, grounded in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says it well in Romans 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we seek this harmony by the Holy Spirit through the study of the clear and concise teachings confessed in the Book of Concord, as we believe, teach, and confess that these writings are in accord with God's Holy Word. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Today we're going back to the basics, and something most people associated with the Universal Christian Church are familiar with, the Apostles, Nicene, and Athanasian Creeds, otherwise known as the Ecumenical Creeds. Sometimes there might be a perception that we as Lutherans want to separate ourselves from everyone, yet when the Concordians included the creeds at the very beginning of the Book of Concord, it showed that they were committed to the historic Christian faith grounded in Christ and God's Holy Word. And you know what? You may have recited these creeds thousands of times. I know I have. But whenever I've studied them, I've always learned something new. So join us in doing so today. So let's dig in. Open up your Book of Concord and open up your Bibles and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our study of the creeds, send us an email. KFUO at KFUO.org. KFUO at KFUO.org. Joining us in the Confession of Christ, we welcome back the Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchemeyer of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Pastor Ketchemeyer, welcome back to Concord Matters. Oh, it is great to be here. Pastor, let's just dig in. I, you know, there's there's a lot we could cover today, so I want to make sure we do. So I want to invite you, our listeners, to open up your Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, the Reader's Edition. A reminder: this is the second edition of this, um, the Lutheran Confessions. On page 15, as we re- are now, we're starting to dig into the actual documents of the Book of Concord. But first, we have the introduction, which is on page 15, and then we'll go back around and talk even more about everything that is in this powerful part of the Book of Concord. So let's start confessing on page 15. Lutheranism is not a new faith, but a continuation of the historic Christian faith of all times and places. In this sense, Lutheranism is Catholic, small c, a word that comes from two Greek words, meaning according to the whole. While Christians of all times and at all places, we confess what God's word teaches, nothing more, nothing less. For this reason, it was important for the Lutheran laymen at Augsburg to make it clear to the emperor that they fully accepted the ancient creeds of the church. The Augsburg Confession refers to the fathers, a reference to formative teachers in the history of the church, most notably the early church fathers who lived and worked between the 1st and 5th centuries. Lutheranism embraces this history as its own, but with discernment. Lutheranism does not regard the traditions and teachings of the fathers of the church as equal to Scripture, but always subject to evaluation in light of Scripture. Neither Martin Luther nor any of his colleagues ever claimed to be starting a new church. Such a thought was the farthest thing from their minds. They regarded those on the sectarian side of the Reformation as radicals and revolutionaries. They continually condemned almost everything these radicals stood for, Lutheranism is not about revolution, but reformation. 
It is not about throwing away the past, but about retaining and preserving the best while filtering out whatever covers and contradicts God's word. The Lutherans were never wanted to reject and rebel against the Roman church. They were, however, held captive by force of the clear truth of God's word. They refused to compromise that truth. They denied the claim by Rome that it was in fact the true church. They regarded Romanism to be a deep corruption of the genuine church Catholic universal of the New Testament and of the early fathers of the church. The term of Catholicity was reserved by Lutherans only for that which was biblically true, not what was merely a long-honored tradition within the Roman church. Many years after being forced out of the fellowship with Rome, Martin Luther finally let his name be associated with the teachings by speaking of Lutheranism. The most ancient of all confessions of faith in the Western Church are the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. The texts and translations conform with those in the hymnal of the Lutheran Service Book. And the Lutheran Service Book is the official hymnal of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, that's just a great introduction for us. Why? What is important about what it says of why it's important for us to have creeds? Well, you know, here in America, we have this concept of American restoration movement uh, in the 1800s, where you, you have this slogan or this kind of bumper sticker theology of, of deeds and not creeds. I mean, kind of this anti-understanding uh, of anything that's historic, anything that's Catholic, anything that has a tie back to the ancient church. So here in America with that Reformation, which we, we not the same as what we would call the Reformation in Germany, but here in America, it's, it's this, this restoration movement. This restoration movement here in America is trying to emphasize no creeds because they're intentionally trying to, to sever ties with the ancient church. And that's kind of our American context here. And even when we talk about being evangelical, we are evangelical. We're the original evangelicals because it's the gospel that we proclaim, but we're not American evangelicals. Well, it's the same thing when we talk about being a Catholic. Uh, we are Catholic, like as you said, with a little c, going back to this universal church according to the whole and not sectarian, not taking one section and overemphasizing one part of Scripture while rejecting or de-emphasizing the rest of Scripture. So we are Catholic but not Roman Catholic. We are evangelical but not American evangelicals with that restoration movement kind of mentality that's anti-creed. And we're also Orthodox, but we're not Eastern Orthodox. Uh, we are Orthodox with the doctrine of the apostles, the apostolic teaching. So the emphasis is not upon an apostolic succession insofar as one hand being laid upon another hand by another hand by another hand with a bishop. It's not just that kind of that formality of a ritual, but instead is, is it the same teaching as the apostles? Is it apostolic in what the apostles taught? And that's where you go back to the scriptures in the New Testament where we have the apostolic faith written down for us so we can be certain and sure that we're hearing God's voice. So we, we don't put the creeds on that same level as the written scripture. The written scripture itself, of course, is inspired by the Holy Spirit, infallible, inerrant, efficacious. I mean, this is God's word. It doesn't contain God's word like the liberals would say, but it is God's word. But what we have in the creeds is the creeds are a historic, the historic circumstances in which a controversy would break out. 
So it's a testimony when there is a, a, a problem with now two different groups, let's say, who are now teaching two different things. So there's something new that's being added to this apostolic faith that we have grounded in the scriptures, that's handed down so we can be certain and sure what the apostles were teaching. And so then the question is, here's a new teaching. Is this the correct teaching? And with the creeds, especially the Athanasian Creed, that's the creed where we're really challenging this new teaching of Arianism. But let's not go to the Athanasian Creed yet. Let's, let's go back to that Apostles' Creed. I mean, so the Apostles' Creed is kind of this foundational creed of baptism. It's what you are being baptized into. So it's that creed of the Apostles, which is taking that apostolic doctrine. I mean, at one point in time, there was this idea that there were 12 apostles, so there were 12 parts to the Apostles' Creed. Of course, what we do as Lutherans for catechetical purposes is we separate this into three different articles. We have creation, redemption, and sanctification, so we can emphasize the personal work of the Father, personal work of the Son, and personal work of the Holy Spirit. But when you look at that Apostles' Creed, this is a key of, of a creed that was used at baptism, so that this is what you are being baptized into. This is the apostolic faith. This is a Trinitarian faith. Uh, so like St. Basil of Caesarea, who's in the fourth century, I mean, we're talking about early church fathers here, and we're, we're talking about this time period of the fourth century, St. Basil of Caesarea would say this, as we are baptized, so we worship, as we worship, so we believe. So this, this Apostles' Creed is a, quote-unquote, belief statement. This is what we are to believe. We are baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So then that's how the liturgy itself flows from that, that name of God given to us in baptism, that we would worship in this way in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we have access to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is our advocate with the Father. And the Holy Spirit is the one who continues to call, gather, and enlighten us and bring us into this Christian faith. So as we are baptized, so we worship, and as we worship, so we believe. So this is why we also see this understanding of putting the creeds in our liturgy, so that the liturgy itself is going to teach this Trinitarian understanding of the faith as we've been baptized, but the creed then also solidifies this. So you have that baptismal creed of the apostles. Now, in the Nicene Creed, this is where things got a little bit dicey, because now you have a new teaching with Arius, and so this is the controversy that breaks out. Arius is now making a claim that he's saying that there was a time when the Son of God did not exist. Now, to, to be clear here, uh, what Arius was trying to do is he was trying to battle against a previous heresy, which was a modalism. Uh, this idea that there was uh, that, that that there's one God who at one time is is a father at one time the son and at another time it takes upon this mode of the spirit and so he's trying to make a clear trying to and I emphasize trying to make this distinction between the three persons of the Trinity because with modalisms there's this confusion that it's just it's one entity one divine essence but in different modes at different times so what Arius is really trying, but he fails miserably, but what he's trying to do is make a distinction between the Father and the Son. So what's the distinction between the Father and the Son according to Arius? Well, a father has to come first. A son cannot exist without a father. So it's a sequential understanding. 
that if you have the person of the Father, then at another point in time, you would have the person of the Son. So you couldn't have the Son first. You couldn't have the Son at the same time as the Father because you have to have a Father first and then a Son. So this is what Arius was trying to do. And in that, what he was then trying to fall into was this, there's a Father, and then there's a time when the Son did not exist, and then there was a time when the Son did exist. And so this is where he emphasized the Son as part of creation, a created being, and not of the, that same divine essence of the Father. So in trying to make a distinction in the plurality of persons, and he fails miserably, what he does then is that he goes the opposite side and he destroys the unity of the divine essence. So no longer is the Son the one who is of the same divine essence of the Father. The Son is different and distinct from the Father. And do you have the Father who is eternal, the Son who's not eternal, according to Arius, because there's a time when the Son didn't exist. You have the Father who is divine, but then the Son who comes later as a creature is not divine. And so these are the distinctions that uh, Arius is trying to make and that the Father would get the glory, but the Son wouldn't get the same glory. So in the Creed of Nicaea, when you gather 325, I mean, the creed is not really yet formulated. It's, it's you're trying to deal with this controversy. Are we following this new teaching of Arius, trying to make this distinction of the Father and Son, or in the baptismal creed of the apostles, we have a distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? You know, how do we want to make the distinction? So at Nicaea, the big issue at first in 325 was how do we properly confess the Son? And in order to properly confess the Son, you say that the Son is begotten of the Father, but he is eternally begotten. There was never a time when he did not exist. And so then you start using this language to clarify if the Son is eternally begotten, then the Father is eternally unbegotten. There's the distinction. The Father is eternally unbegotten and the Son is eternally begotten. And so the Father is the one who begets the Son. And so the Son is God of God. He's true God of true God. He begotten, not made. See, that's what Arius is trying to make a distinction, saying that the Son is just merely a creature, that he's just part of creation and not the creator. But we say that he is God of God, true God of true God, begotten, not made. This is the one who is the Son. Um, but at Nicaea, that's really the emphasis. And at that point, the controversy was not about the Holy Spirit. So that's really not what they were trying to attempt to do with that first round of, of, of this council. Later on at Constantinople in 381, between that time period of 325, 381, you're trying to pound all this out. Because after you, you have the council in 325, then you have these semi-Aryans who say, yeah, we sort of agree with you, but not quite. <laughs> and then in that process, then you have to say, well, how, does, how do we then make that clear distinction? How do we confess it? How do we teach it? How do we believe it about the person of the Holy Spirit? So it's not until later on when you develop this, this clear confession in the midst of a controversy. So it's a historical uh, account of what happened, a testimony of how theologically we address these issues based upon the apostolic teaching that, of course, is given to us in the Holy Scripture. So as, as we look at this, it is, it is fascinating to be able to see that the focus of each one and you said it so well baptism um clearly confessing christ and then even more confessing the truth of the trinity and i i find this interesting 
as we look at it today, is that you said deeds, not creeds, which is a, a tagline that we've heard. But I've also heard this one, and I want to hear your thoughts on it because it's going to be helpful as we look at the focus of why we have the creeds, where someone will say something along the lines of, no creed, but the Bible. How would you respond to that, especially in light of the, the, the great focus that our, the church fathers and, and the historic church has had with our creeds? Well, no, this is great because, see, this is where we have a, a historic disconnect, okay? So when you say no creed but the Bible, th there is a intentional—it's very American, but it also happened at the time of the Reformation. I mean, with the Anabaptists, they were doing the same thing. The Anabaptists were severing ties with the historic church. I mean, so in the historic church, when we say in the Nicene Creed, we believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, the remission of sins. The Anabaptists came on the scene and said, we do not believe in one baptism for the remission of sins. So the Anabaptists were kind of those originators of an American-type thought, and what they're doing is they're intentionally severing ties from the historic church. So they're saying, we are a new church. That's what the Anabaptists are doing. We are a new church, and we do not accept the creeds of the ancient church. And so the Anabaptists would have that same kind of a concept. Instead of having a creed, they would just have the Bible. But again, the creed is a historic testimony of when a controversy breaks out, and how did the church, the living body of Christ, uh, since the uh, apostolic age, how did the church respond to this in that history? So the Anabaptists wanted to sever ties with history. Here in America, they also want to sever ties with history. So the idea is you say there is no creed but the Bible, but the irony is that's actually a creed. You know, that's a, <laughs> exactly. that, that's a statement of faith. I mean, that's what that is. So you're making a statement of what you hold to, what you teach, what you confess, what you believe. I mean, so that little statement is a creed. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it's a different kind of creed because it's not an ecumenical creed. It's a creed with those who intentionally are severing ties with the historic Catholic Church. And so let's do this. We have a few minutes before our break. Let's confess each one of the creeds and then talk about each one as you've given us a review to this point. Um, yeah, I think I'm ready to do that. So let's go to the Apostles' Creed, which you, our listeners, is on page 16. And I remind you again, as we've received this overview, that as we dig into each creed, don't don't just gloss over. This can happen in church for us pastors as well, is that you read it and you confess it, but then you're kind of like, ah, blah, 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 blah. I've said it before, nothing new to learn here. But there is. And so I just encourage you to focus in, um, make sure we're focused on, on who our Lord is and the gifts that he has to give to us. So we're on page 16, and we'll confess the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Pastor, you mentioned that this was a baptismal creed. What else do you want to highlight? Well, again, as a baptismal creed, you are being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
So this is what you're being baptized into. So this is how you are to worship, and this is how you are to believe. So it's a creed that it gives you kind of this rule, if you will, uh, of, of how you would articulate the Christian faith. So the Christian faith is not just this concept of deeds. I mean, another American little uh, slogan or bumper sticker theology is this idea that uh, that doctrine divides. I mean, that's the concept. So doctrine is bad. And so instead of doctrine, you just talk about Jesus. Well, <laughs> in order to talk about Jesus, you have to clearly confess, teach, and believe who Jesus is, what Jesus has done as the scriptures clearly teach us. And so you're taking that and you're giving that word in a way that can be articulated. So in that baptismal creed, this is giving to you the form of what you're being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that we would understand that we are being baptized in the name of the true God, the only God, the one who has created all things, the one who has redeemed all things through the person and work of Christ, that Christ himself took upon flesh and blood in order to do what we could not do, uh, perfectly do everything that's required and demanded by the law, uh, everything that is forbidden he did not do. I mean, so he had no sin, but yet he takes our sin himself, he takes all of our wickedness, and then he's crucified. He's put to death because it's a wages of sin. And so in baptism, you are being united into that death with Jesus. In baptism, then you're also being raised with Jesus. So then we're confessing that he was raised for our righteousness. And so your focus here is on the person and work of the Son. In fact, this is where in the Gospels themselves, when you, you see where is it that Jesus is proclaimed to the people, it's at the baptism of Jesus. And it's at the baptism of Jesus where you have the voice of the Father from heaven, the heavens open wide and say, this is my beloved Son. This is the one. And so the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. So in the baptism of Jesus, you have this Trinitarian vision, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the emphasis is upon Jesus. And so when we are baptized, we are put into that same framework that the Father now looks upon us and says, this is my beloved Son, because we are in Christ. We have been buried with Christ. We've been united into his death. We've been crucified with Christ. We are hidden in Christ. And so when the Father sees us, he now sees his Son. And so by grace, we have been adopted through baptism into the family of God. So that, that creed then puts this framework of what just happened when you were baptized. You're constantly learning this new identity that you have. Now, of course, in the catechism, Luther will say, well, what does this new identity mean? Well, it means that we've been united with Christ in his death, and then we would daily die to sin. The old Adam in us would be put to death again and again and again. Because as the baptized, it's not that sin is not remaining in us. There's still sin that remains in us. But as the baptized, that sin shall not reign over us. And so we are constantly, daily, putting to death the old Adam, rearing its ugly head, wanting to be an enemy of God, a hater of God, uh, one that wants to reject Jesus and resist the Holy Spirit. But then this is where we, we get into that third part of this understanding of the, the work of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit is the one who is bringing us into the church, the body of Christ here, with fellow believers in this same faith, the apostolic faith, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as 
articulated here in this apostolic creed. And so this is the faith that we believe. This is the way in which we worship. And so the Holy Spirit is doing this, and the Holy Spirit is the one that continues to give to us the forgiveness of sins and continues to assure us of the resurrection of the body. So when we are baptized, we're baptized in our bodies. So this is not just merely this spiritual experience. I mean, this is an American thing. It's all about a spiritual experience to become born again. Instead, this is being born from above by God with water and the Word. That's where the Holy Spirit works. That's where the Holy Spirit is given, assuring us with the voice of the Father saying, this is my son, the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove, that the Holy Spirit is there working with that vocalized word that we have, the word from heaven, that we are adopted, we are children of God, and we belong to him. He's named us, he's claimed us, and it's done in our bodies. So the water is done for our bodies, and the word is done for our soul so that we can be certain and sure we belong to God. And then what God begins in our bodies, we will then see completed on that last day in the resurrection of our bodies. So baptismal uh, regeneration, this whole act of God is this beginning this good work in us and then this daily dying and rising again to newness of life will ultimately be seen on that last day in the resurrection of the body when sin will no longer remain in us at all. In fact, sin won't even be there. We won't even be capable of sinning at that point in time. Well, there's a lot there, and I'm excited to speak even further about this baptismal identity, but we need to take our break. We are studying the ecumenical creeds and the Book of Concord. We'll be right back. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple, and faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. studying and confessing the three ecumenical creeds with the Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchemeyer from Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Pastor, it is, it is so important as we look at the Apostles' Creed, and I would invite you, our guest, as we studied this literally before on here on Concord Matters, as we looked at the small catechism, this would have been in November, late November, with uh, Pastor Jason Bredesen from California, Pastor Terry Forkey, who is the Montana District President, and Pastor Matthew Richard from Minot, North Dakota, when they studied the creed and each specific Part. So I, I encourage you, our listeners, to look at the Apostles' Creed as we studied it, because it was an outstanding um, three studies that we had on the small catechism. Pastor, as you've mentioned so beautifully, that this creed is meant to unite the Apostles' Creed. Obviously, all three creeds are. But what a powerful identity reminder for us that not only that we, okay, we're baptized into Christ and this unites us, this is the God of whom we are baptized into. So every time we confess it, it's in a sense a reminder of our baptism. Any thoughts to that? 
Yeah, so when we confess this, th this is the typical place that it has been used. Originally, it wasn't. I mean, originally at Nicaea and later on Constantinople, I mean, we're, we're trying to formulate, articulate, how do we confess the faith when there's a controversy? But later on, this is then used within the liturgy itself, so that in that Nicene Creed, we are learning how to confess the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are learning how to believe, we're learning how to worship in this Trinitarian way. And so that Nicene Creed is the one that we use typically in our service when we have Holy Communion. It's bringing that unity of faith, this communion that connects us with the apostolic church from the ages in the past and also connects us to the saints who have gone on before us as we gather together and confess the same faith. So, Pastor, as we look at this, the 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 the, the baptismal the baptismal rea realities of the Apostles' Creed, and as you said, we confess the Nicene Creed typically when we receive Holy Communion. Can you kind of break that down a little bit? Why the Apostles' Creed for baptism, and well, more importantly, as we've already discussed this, the Nicene Creed for communion. I mean, it's not like a written down law from the Lord, but there's a fullness to it. And why is that important when we're taking communion? Yeah, so again, in, in the baptismal creed, it's a shorter creed. It is a creed that we are baptized into. I mean, so this is what we are to, to believe, I and mean, this is what we are to worship. In the Nicene Creed, this is when you had that fracture in the church with Arianism being taught by Arius, the heretic, and then what Athanasius was teaching. And so we want to have that unity of faith that says, says that we are Catholic in the way of Athanasius. Okay. So when we gather together in this unity of faith for communion, for fellowship, for participation together, we are of Athanasius. That's what we are of. And so in that creed itself, when you talk about the, I mean, you talk about the communion of saints in the Apostles' Creed, but you, you have a fuller, a fuller confession of faith in that third article about the Holy Spirit. And this is where, in particular, we say that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And then you acknowledge the one baptism for the remission of sins. And then you look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. But this is this emphasis upon one holy Catholic and apostolic church, that unity of the church, that this is a belief statement that we believe the church is united in the confession of faith of Christ. And this is where we get into this understanding of it being a belief statement. I mean, we look around us and we see that there are there's a lot of disunity out there. A lot of uh, there is no unity. Sometimes we look to our left and to our right, but it's a a statement of belief that God Himself knows His church. That church exists throughout the world, throughout time, and it consists of those who believe in Jesus as the one who saves them from their sins, believes in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, believes that God is the one who does the act of creation, God is the one who does the act of redemption, God is the one who does the act of this sanctification and bringing us together. I mean, so this is where we're really looking more at this, this unity of faith. And even we, when we start off in the Nicene Creed, we say, I believe in one God. I mean, so immediately in the Nicene Creed, you're talking about the unity of the divine essence. So you believe in one God, unity of divine essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-essential, co-equal, co-eternal. 
I mean, this is the one God that we believe in. And then you come back as God's people. We are one church, one holy church, because he is holy and he alone can make us holy. And we're holy by the blood of Christ. So let's confess that creed, the Nicene Creed, like you mentioned, we often will um, confess on communion Sundays. The Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Pastor, as, as you read this, at first, it happens often when, when, you're, when you're in church, and I've seen this with my own children, is that they start confessing, they're like proud that they have memorized it, and all of a sudden they add a few words in there like, and of all things visible and invisible. Um, arose again according to the scriptures and ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand. All these things, that kind of adds these words, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. It's very intentional, like you mentioned, that they're fighting a specific heresy of their time to make it very clear of where Christians actually stood. So um, break this down for us a little more, the Nicene Creed. Well, again, look at the, the issue with Arius. Is Arius is trying, <laughs> miserably trying, to make a distinction between the person of the Father and the Son. Right? He fails miserably because he then says, the Father is creator, the Son is creature. The Father always existed, the Son didn't always exist. But here you have this clear understanding of this distinction in the plurality of persons. But at the same time, you are retaining this unity of the divine essence. So Arius lost that. There's no unity of the divine essence because for Arius, Jesus is not God. So when we begin and we say we believe in one God, this is the unity of the divine essence here. When we go to the article about the Son, this is where we're trying to articulate this. How is he of the same essence of the Father? He is the only begotten Son. He is co-essential. Uh, he is God of God, light of light, very God of uh, very God, begotten and not made like what Arius said. And he is being of one substance with the Father. I mean, that's our kind of a, the Latin way we would say this instead of co-essential is uh, consubstantial, consubstantial. He is of one substance with the Father. And so you're emphasizing this unity of the divine essence uh, or from Latin, unity of the divine substance, right? And when you get to the third article, again, we want to emphasize this unity of the divine essence in the plurality of persons. So here the Holy Spirit is the one who is also <laughs> the Lord and giver of life. He's the one who gives life. 
The Father gives life, the Son gives life, the Holy Spirit gives life. They were all there in creation. I mean, in the beginning was God, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and then the Word was spoken, let there be light. And He is the one who brings forth life. He is life and light. But you have all three there at creation. You have all three in the act of restoration and redemption. And so the Holy Spirit is being placed in the same understanding. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, and so uh, the, that, that procession proceeding from the Father and Son is how we articulate that he is of that same divine essence or divine substance, as you would say, substantia. But in you say, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, that he is co-equal. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all co-equal, a given divine worship. They are all co-eternal. They are all co-essential. And so you're emphasizing this with the Holy Spirit. He's worshiped and he's glorified. Now, of course, in the Nicene Creed, as we confess it in the Western Church, we have that extra and the Son. So he proceeds from the Father and the Son because we want to emphasize that the Son likewise, just like the Holy Spirit, is co-essential. So what the Son has is given to the Holy Spirit, as John would say in his gospel. And so we emphasize that. In the East, they don't because that wasn't articulated in one of these ecumenical creeds at one of these ecumenical councils. It was later on the ecumenical creed that was confessed in the West, particularly to combat Islam that is a Christian heresy. Islam is saying, just like Arius, that Jesus is not true God. Uh, that Jesus, according to Islam, a uh, false uh, teaching, of course, that Jesus is actually inferior to Muhammad, that Muhammad's a greater prophet than Jesus. And so the emphasis in the West, fighting Islam, especially over in Spain in that area, is that we're going to emphasize the Son here, that the Holy Spirit proceeds not only from the Father, but also from the Son, because it's of the same divine essence. But that's that unity of the divine essence, and it is that unity of the Christian faith. It's the Trinity that unites us, that we are Trinitarian. And so that's why, like as Lutherans, we would accept a baptism from another a community, another communion, another church body that, that, that confesses the Trinity and baptizes in the Trinity. We would accept that as a valid baptism. But such groups as like the Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the deity of Christ, we would not accept their baptism. It's not a baptism at all. Or the Mormons, we would not accept their baptism. That's not a baptism at all because those are both non-Trinitarian, anti-Trinitarian, non-Christian sectarian uh, heresies just like Islam. So it's his emphasis of the, the unity of the faith here is confessed in this Nicene Creed when we gather together as the body of Christ to receive the body of Christ from the altar uh, and, of course, Christ's blood. Well, and I want to address this before we get to the Athanasian Creed, is that we, we've spoken to how the Creed unites us and this beautiful language, baptismal unity, that you know, those who are baptized into the triune God in the Christian faith, and especially when they confess what the Apostles' Creed says, that we are united in that, uh, that confession, that truth of the triune God. When we take communion and we confess an Nicene Creed, we are more assured of our unity with those who surround us to say, that's my confession because it is in accordance with God's word. But also, like you mentioned here at the end, is that the creed also 
separates what is true and what is not true, which is, I think, very much so a comfort for the conscience, a comfort for the soul to know, okay, with anything in life, you need to know what is true, but you also need to know what is not true, which is which is really what the whole book of Concord does for us as well. Do you want to speak to that a little bit about how these creeds do divide, but it's also for the sake of, of the conscience of those who hear it and confess it? Yeah, so when you go to these councils like Nicaea 325 all the way up to Constantinople 381, I mean, what you're also doing in these these councils is you are trying to articulate. You're trying to use the language of the church and say, this is how we are going to teach the faith. And so in those instances, at those councils, they're trying to pound this out. And so they're formulating this creed, and at the same time, they're saying, this is what we believe, but at the same time, this is what we reject. So in the Book of Concord, you'll see that a lot, especially in the the solid declaration, uh, the the concord, uh, the formula. It's a formula of Concord in the Epitome, where you say this is what we believe, teach, and confess, and this is what we reject, because you want to make that clear in teaching. So when you actually look at the, the creed as 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 articulated and kind of formulated in these councils, they'll have a long list of things that we reject, so that you can make it sure. But in the use of the liturgy, we don't add all those things that are extra components of what we reject, because in the liturgy, what we're trying to emphasize is what unites, what unites. True doctrine unites. It's false doctrine that divides. I mean, so that American mantra of doctrine divides, okay, false doctrine divides. That's what divides. But true doctrine unites. And so what we're trying to do in the Nicene Creed in the liturgy, or when we use the Apostles' Creed in the liturgy, is we're saying this is what unites us. This is what we hold to as the body of Christ. This is what we believe. Well, let's. we have about 15 minutes left in our time. The Athanasian Creed is quite long. So let's get into that. And it's wonderful because what my kids would always say, and still do to this day, is when we get to the end of May, they're like, Dad, are we going to do that long, long creed again? <laughs> and so that's always around that Trinitarian Trinity Sunday time and something that is always quite memorable because it repeats itself, but also it makes it very clear of what Scripture says while leaving us with many questions that we just have to leave to the Lord. So we hear the confession of the Athanasian Creed on page 17. Whoever desires to be saved must, above all, hold the Catholic small c faith. Whoever does not keep it whole and undefiled will without doubt perish eternally. And this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Holy Spirit is another. But the Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such as the Son, and such as the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father infinite, the Son infinite, the Holy Spirit infinite. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. Just as there are not three uncreated or three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. In the same way, the Father is Almighty, the Son Almighty, the Holy Spirit Almighty. And yet there are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. So the Father is God, 
The Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. So the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, and yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. Just as we are compelled by the Christian truth to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so also we are prohibited by the Catholic religion to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father is not made nor created but begotten by anyone. The Son is neither made nor created but begotten of the Father alone. The Holy Spirit is of the Father, and the Son neither made nor created nor begotten but proceeding. Thus there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. In this, in this trinity none is before or after another, none is greater or less than the other. But the whole three persons are co-eternal with each other and co-equal so that in all things, as has been stated above, the trinity in unity and unity in trinity is to be worshipped. Therefore, whoever desires to be saved must think thus about the trinity. But it is also necessary for everlasting salvation that one faithfully believe the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore is the right faith that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at the same time both God and man. He is God, begotten from the substance of the Father before all ages, and he is man, born of the substance of his mother in his, this age, perfect God and perfect man, composed of a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father in respect to his divinity, less than the Father with respect to his humanity. Although he is God and man, he is not two but one Christ. One, however, not by the conversion of the divinity into flesh, but by the assumption of the humanity into God. One altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For as a rational soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again from the third day from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, people will, all people will rise again with their bodies and give an account concerning their own deeds. And those who have done good will enter into eternal life, and those who have done evil into eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith. Whoever does not believe it faithfully and firmly cannot be saved. Pastor, we have just over 10 minutes to cover all of that. <laughs> Where should we begin about this um, great confession of faith, the Athanasian Creed? Well, I think where we begin is how it's framed. I mean, so that very first line is, whoever desires to be saved. Okay. So how does one have salvation? Yeah, above all, must, must, above all, hold the Catholic faith. Okay. That you would believe this to be true that you would hold to this as the article of faith, that who God is and what God does and has done for us and promises to continue to do in us. And so this is the desire for salvation. So whoever desires to be saved must, above all, hold the Catholic faith. So that Catholic is a universal faith. It's the whole. It's not a sectarian. It's not a separation. It's not a, a unique Bible passage that you personally like out of your own uh, interpretation but it's what the church has taught from the apostolic age. So that's how this whole creed begins. And then notice how it's framed at the end. You come back with that last line at the end. This is the Catholic faith. Whoever does not believe it faithfully and firmly cannot be saved. 
I mean, so to be saved is to believe this. But it's not just a merely to believe it as to agree that, yes, I accept it as a true statement. But to believe it is to then trust in what is confessed here. And so that's why in the second part of it, the whole emphasis is upon the person and work of Christ, that Jesus is the one who suffered for our salvation. So this is the key. He's the Savior from our sin. So if you want to be saved, this is what you are to believe. Uh, whoever doesn't believe this cannot be saved. I mean, that's the framework. And then the emphasis is going to be on the person and work of Christ, that Christ himself is the one who saves. He suffered for us. He took our sins. He's the one who rose again from the dead. He's the one who gives us his righteousness. He's the one who now ascends into heaven and stands as our high priest, our mediator. So that's the emphasis that we have here, articulating clearly that you can't have the Son of God, the true Son of God, without the Father and without the Holy Spirit. I mean, so you can't separate the Father or the Holy Spirit from the Son. So the emphasis is upon the person and work of the Son for the salvation of our souls, the restoration of creation. But you can't have that without the one who is the true God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, and it's interesting because it goes through this very important wording about the Trinity. And this is made famous on, on various YouTube with uh, St. Patrick's Day and trying to confess clearly the, the Trinity. You know, the Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, uh, the Holy Spirit uncreated. But it's not three uncreateds or three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. So you go through all that and it really just reminds us of the... Uh, of the, the mystery of the Trinity. And at the same time, at the very end, I mean, when they wrote this, it's very clear. They're like, but this is about salvation in Christ. You know, admitting what the triune God is, but making sure that the clarity of the gospel, clarity of Christ, who he is, the, the two natures of Christ, what he has done for you is what the purpose of the Athanasian Creed is so that people may know where salvation comes and this is how you know it. It's all written out here, which is, I think, for a long time, I didn't, I didn't realize that that emphasis at the end on the work and salvation that we have in Christ is a central point to it all. Other thoughts? Well, again, you know, when we have this framework of the one who desires to be saved, believes this, but kind of in the middle, kind of this uh, this joint that joins these two confessions clearly, the confession of the Trinity and the confession of the person and work of Christ, also has that same kind of a hinge, that you end with this clear teaching, this clear confession, this clear believing on the Trinity, and then you say, therefore, whoever desires to be saved must think thus about the Trinity. I mean, you can't have a different God. I mean, if you have a different God, it's not the true God. If you have a God that's not the Trinity, that's not the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as articulated here, that's an idol. That's a false God. It's an image from your own imagination, how your heart imagines what you want your God to be, a domesticated mm. deity that does whatever you say. But this is the true God, the living God. So you, you put this hinge here that therefore whoever desires to be saved must think this about the Trinity, and then the hinge opens up to the next section, section, but it is also necessary for everlasting salvation, again, to be saved, that one faithfully, faithfully believe the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now here's where we're, we're, we're emphasizing the personal work of Jesus. 
The Father did not take upon flesh and blood and die for our sins. The Holy Spirit did not take upon flesh and blood and die for our sins. Only the Son did. Only the eternal Word of God became man. The Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us to bring this salvation for us. So that's the key here, that you have the Father sends forth the Son. And the Father says, listen to the Son. The Holy Spirit says, listen to the Son. And so the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see Jesus, to hear Jesus, to believe Jesus, that that's the whole emphasis of this work of salvation and the forgiveness of sins that the Holy Spirit continues to pour out upon us from the the ascended Lord, our, our high priest, who continues to pour out the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins upon us. At the very end, I want to make sure we touch on this because I've had numerous people talk to me about it, is we'll talk about all these things that Christ has done for your forgiveness. And at this end, it says, At his coming, all people will rise again with their bodies and give an account concerning their own deeds. That's clearly in Scripture. And it says this, And those who have done good will enter into eternal life, and those who have done evil into eternal fire. One, a number of people have came to me. It's kind of fascinating. And they said, I thought we were saved by the grace of God. Pastor, how would you respond to this, especially when they confess those very uh, can be very uh, difficult words to hear? How would you describe that? Well, again, right now we are in that state where we are waiting for the return of Christ to judge the living and the dead. I mean, so right now is the day of salvation. Right now is the day where Jesus is the high priest, the mediator. He's the one who stands between us and God's wrath because of our sin. So he's the one who speaks well of us to the Father. Now, covering all our sin, giving us his own righteousness. But this is unpacking that judging the living and the dead. There will come a day where no longer is it the day of salvation. It's the day of judgment. It's the day of damnation, if you will, for those who did not believe when the day of salvation came, that they did not see the day of the visitation of the Lord who comes to be here for us now. And so it's unpacking that judgment day, which is very similar to Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus says, you know, on that day, the Son of Man will come in all his glory, and he will gather the nations like a shepherd gathers the sheep and the goats. And so when you have that, that last day, that judgment before the throne, when he comes to judge the living and the dead, what you see is the sheep enter into that judgment already as sheep. So they're sheep, and sheep are the ones who hear the voice of the shepherd. Sheep are the ones who know the voice of the shepherd. Sheep are the ones who believe that the good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep, and he took it up again. That's the sheep. So they come into that last judgment as already sheep, already justified, already righteous by faith before God, and now they stand before God in that righteousness. Mm -hmm. But now in that judgment, then the sheep are then, as this says right here, giving an account of deeds. I mean, that's the account. So the sheep have done sheep things. In other words, what they've done is the things that are in line with the new impulses, the, the new thoughts, the new words, the new deeds, that this is what the Holy Spirit is working in this regeneration, this renewal of us, that we are beginning to walk in newness of life. So this is where the sheep are, are talked about in the way that what they have done is the things that were good, the things that they didn't do are not even brought out. 
But on the flip side, you have the goats who enter into this judgment. They're already goats. They do not listen to the voice of the shepherd. They did not listen to the voice of the shepherd. So they're already in that state where they have remained as enemies of God, haters of God, in that animosity and enmity, rejecting the word of God, which is Jesus, and resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. So on that last day, they are brought to give an account of their deeds. And what is brought to the floor, if you will, is that these are the evil deeds that you've done, where you have failed to do what you were required to do. So it's the sense of omission. You did not do this. And so all you can see is what is not done that's good. But for the sheep, all you see is what is done that is good. So in that way, there is a giving account of these deeds. So those who have done good will enter eternal life. That's the sheep. They already are sheep. They don't become sheep because they did good deeds. Because they are sheep who know the shepherd's voice, they do sheep deeds. And the goats, because they do not listen to the voice of the shepherd, they do not do uh, sheep deeds. They do goat deeds, which are evil. That's a sin. And so without faith, it's impossible to please God. I mean, so the goats can say, hey, when did we do this? I don't remember. When did I have the opportunity to do this? Because I'm sure I would have done it. It doesn't matter because you're already a goat. So you've entered in to this judgment, and then now you go out into evil, eternal fire. I mean, you're being separated because of the evil deeds that you've done. It's, it's, it's showing this, this separation here, visibly, tangibly, uh, that you have a separation of sheep and goats by the deeds. Well, we have our time here, uh, Pastor Ketchemeyer, the Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchemeyer from Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas, confessing the truth of God's word from the universal ecumenical creeds. Pastor Ketchemeyer, thank you again for your faithful teaching on Concord Matters. Oh, it was a blessing to be here. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finner. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe. Amen.